0: Season 3 ended with the changing of the guard. And change is the operative word when we begin our journey into Season 4 of the Twilight Zone. Or as the opening credits now say, Twilight Zone. But the word, the, disappearing into another dimension wasn't the only change. I mentioned at the end of Season 3 that the great Houghton was vacating his producer's chair. Although the show moving from its Friday 10pm time slot to a weekday primetime TV spot should have been seen as a positive thing, the show's sponsor didn't agree, and when they pulled out, the show was essentially in limbo. Now also, Rod Sailing wasn't too happy about the scheduling either, and he said... The Thursday 9 o'clock slot will eliminate a sizeable young audience that we had in the Friday night berth, but I'm sure one can't expect everything. Now of course after three seasons it wasn't a done deal that the Twilight Zone would stay dead, but after steering the ship for three seasons Buck Houghton accepted a job offer and moved on. But surely Rod Serling was still there. Well, yes and no. He had accepted a job teaching at Antioch College, and was also writing his adaptation of Seven Days in May. He was still writing scripts for The Twilight Zone, but then mailing them in for the new producer, Herbert Hirschman, to put into production. Now, Hirschman knew his way around the producer's role having worked extensively on Dr. Kildare and Perry Mason, two very successful shows, and he had also directed a number of episodes of television throughout the 1950s. And this would be to Twilight Zone's advantage down the line, because when they needed pickups on episodes, instead of getting the original director back in, he would just direct the scenes himself. And he also states in The Twilight Zone Companion that he was the one who developed and filmed the new opening credits for this season. But with Rod Serling physically absent, their relationship had a few bumps. Hershman said in The Twilight Zone Companion, He would mail me his scripts, and I would send him the other scripts that he himself hadn't written. Then we'd discuss his comments and notes on the phone. We had a few fights. Rod was a tremendously talented writer and very, very facile. He was so much better than the average television writer that even half as good as he was capable of writing was better than most. I think it became easy for him, and our fights consisted of me saying, Rod, I think that you can do better than this. The scripts were pretty good by television standards. I just thought he was capable Of better work and he had to be flogged and kicked in the arse frankly and argued with to best to him to improve on what was already pretty good so any arguments we had were basically in those categories where he'd send me a script which if it came from somebody else I'd have been thrilled with but I knew he was capable of better things so this was all behind the scenes But the main change, of course, for us at the other side of the screen was that it was no longer filling a half-hour slot, but an hour-long one. Now as we know, Rod Sailing envisioned The Twilight Zone as an hour-long show in the beginning, but had to adapt to what he was given, and out of necessity came a format that worked. And in The Twilight Zone Companion, Mark Zickrey quotes Sailing as saying, Ours is the perfect half-hour show. If we went to an hour, we'd have to flesh out our story soap opera style. Viewers could watch 15 minutes without knowing whether they were in a Twilight Zone or a Desilu Playhouse. George Clemens said, After the fourth or fifth episode, I said, It'll die very quick. I didn't think that the story material we had would carry for an hour. And Richard Matheson said, The ideal Twilight Zone started with a really smashing idea that hit you right in the first few seconds. Then you played that out, and you had a little flip at the end. That was the structure. And Buck Houghton said, People will go along with any old gag. You say, hey, I've got this fellow who can walk through walls. Okay, what else you got? By the time the 40th minute comes along, You've got to be walking on water to keep an audience. So with a new producer, Rod Sailing partially absent, and a creative team who didn't particularly believe in the longer runtime, could they again adapt out of necessity? It's interesting that one of the criticisms leveled at the latest version of the Twilight Zone was that the episodes were too long. Now I personally didn't agree with that criticism, it was just fine for me. So going into season 4, I am open to this. With the new Twilight Zone conceived of longer episodes from day one, it was built that way. The original Twilight Zone was a show that had created three seasons of classic television in the half hour format. They say that if it isn't broke, don't try and fix it. So it's time to see whether in this time of change this was a fix too far. So tonight we're traveling on a subway train to a show that's the same but different. So please take a seat to our destination, Season 4 of Twilight Zone.
1: You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of sight, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone.
0: Why are we the way we are? Why can one child be confident and outgoing, but their sibling be shy and introvert? And if we could alter one aspect of ourselves, some perceived flaw, would that be like removing a brick from a tower that then comes crashing down? As Alan Talbot leaves his hotel and walks out into the night, it's hard to imagine that tonight's journey will take us to a place that asks those questions and in a moment he'll meet an old woman in the subway station we're about to pull into who has some questions of her own. In a moment we're going to pull into that station to meet the seemingly mild-mannered Alan Talbot in tonight's twilight zone in his image.
1: you have just witnessed could be the end of a particularly terrifying nightmare. It isn't. It's the beginning. Although Alan Talbot doesn't know it, he's about to enter a strange new world. Too incredible to be real. Too real to be a dream. It's called The Twilight Zone.
0: First broadcast on the 3rd of January 1963. Written by Charles Beaumont and directed by Perry Lafferty. Now before we continue, I have to say that I love the pre-narration opening where Alan Talbot is confronted by the old woman. Two previous Twilight Zone players from different episodes. George Grizzard was from The Chaser and Catherine Squire from One More Paul Bearer. Now the character of Alan Talbot is so average and unassuming at this point and he's just going about his business and being annoyed by the ranting old woman, as any of us would be. The station is dark and moody, with this music that fades out into silence as we look along the dark tracks. And then we hear the voice. Perfect.
1: You're perfect.
0: And he pushes her under the train. Just deliciously dark, I think. And what a great way to set up a mystery, but also to potentially wrong-foot an audience that is maybe a little more savvy now to the twists and the turns of the Twilight Zone. Did he just do this in a fit of anger and the episode will be his cosmic comeuppance as he tries to cover it up? Because that's where I was leaning in my thoughts, but it's not really what we get. So with a new season, we have a mixture of old and new behind the camera too. The sight of Charles Beaumont's name in the credits is comforting, but we'll talk a bit more about him later on. Our director Perry Lafferty is a first-time Twilight Zone director, but had over a decade of experience behind the camera. He only has 19 directing credits to his name, and his last two credits are also in 1962, when this one was made, so it is his first and last Twilight Zone. But his work in the business does continue as a producer, and he worked sparsely but steadily until 1990. Now although he only directed one Twilight Zone, there is another Twilight Zone connection in that for a spell, he was William Shatner's father-in-law when Shatner was married to his daughter. So our Rod Sailing opening narration is quite short, and I think this is a signifier of things to come, as Mark Zickri documents in The Twilight Zone Companion. He says Sailing's presence in Yellow Springs also complicated his role as host narrator on the show. Whenever he had to fly into LA on other business, Hirschman made sure Rod came into the studio and got in front of the camera. And George Clemens recalled to him, that was part of our day off. We'd get sailing out here and do as many as we could, three or four at a time. We'd do things before the picture was made, and hoped that the things he spoke about would come to pass in the picture. And these pieces themselves were directed by the new producer, Hirschman, and he just filmed them all in front of a grey background. So, is this the end of my beloved Rod Sailing in the scene opening narrations? And under these conditions, we don't even get the whip pan and a mock up set either. And because they are filmed in batches, there isn't a whole lot of meat on the bones either in what Sailing is saying, which is a shame, but I guess what could they do? You know, they worked with what they had. But even so, In terms of simple, iconic cool, sailing in a black suit, looking good against a grey backdrop, still has some merit to it. So I'll keep an eye on this as we work through the season.
2: Jess? Yeah? Are you sure? What do you mean? I mean, you know what you're doing. Yes, I do. I am... A spinster, well over 20 years old. And I am sound of mind and sound of body. I'm going to visit a town that I have never seen before for the purpose of meeting and impressing a woman I've never heard of before, for the purpose of marrying a guy I've known for exactly four days. Now, what's so odd about that? No, I'm serious. But so am I. Why shouldn't you... Don't you know more about me or something? Like what? I know your name is Alan Talbot. I know that you come from Corville, New York, that you live in a big white house surrounded by rose bushes and trees, and that you do scientific research on a bomb. Not a bomb, a computer, electronics. Now, you see, you're romanticizing me already. Don't interrupt.
0: Now Alan goes to the apartment of the woman who we find out is to be his wife, but it turns out that they've only actually known each other for four days. Now first of all, I think that our two actors, George Grizzard and Gail Kobe, have a really good chemistry here, and the fact that they've only known each other for four days is relevant for a couple of reasons. So I'm going to talk about the twist of the episode now to get it out of the way so we can keep it in mind as we go through. Now, Alan Talbot is an android who has only actually been alive for a week. So how does one get to the point of marriage within a week? Well, to be honest, it takes all kinds and this does happen in real life too, these whirlwind romances, but also we will later find out That Alan has been imbued with the confidence that his creator wished for himself. And also his creator has given him an artificial background as a bit of a Casanova. Again, something that he wished for himself. Perhaps too it's also playing on Jess describing herself as a spinster, well over 20 years old. And it was a different time then with certain societal pressures and perhaps she was very open to a relationship at this point. So if we take all of these factors into account, we can see how this situation may have occurred. So as they pack their roast chicken into a picnic basket, let's learn a little about Jessica Connolly. She is played by Gail Kobe, a three-time Twilight Zone player. And we've seen her before in a world of difference, and we'll see it again in the self-improvement of Salvador Ross. Now I can't find a great deal about her younger life other than that she was a model before becoming an actress, and with 81 credits to her name, she hit many of the usual shows of the time. But later on in her career, she transitioned behind the camera and produced several soap opera style shows, like The Bold and the Beautiful and Days of Our Lives. And I enjoy her very much in this. She is clearly a very good actor and matches George Grizzard beat for beat. And I also think she does have that sense of a woman who is independent and while she's not desperate for a man, she's certainly open to the possibility. And while this does maybe all seem a little sudden, she's just decided to go with it. Maybe it's hair time. So with freshly roasted chicken securely packed, they head to Coorville so Alan can introduce Jess to his hometown and his Aunt Mildred.
2: Walter. Walter, no. No, it isn't right. Send me back. Alan. Uh, Alan. uh, Alan. uh, Alan. Hmm? You were having a nightmare. Hmm. What in the middle of the morning? (laughs) Who's Walter? Who's who? You kept saying Walter.
0: As Alan takes a nap in the car on the way he seems to be having a dream where he mentions the name Walter and we hear this strange noise. Now we heard this noise earlier on at the subway station and we'll hear it again throughout the episode and it's sometimes accompanied by flashing lights on Alan's face. So let's talk about this for a moment. Having never seen this episode before, I have to admit that my first thought when I heard the noise was that it was something to do with aliens and when there's lights on his face, especially later on, It seemed to me like either aliens were trying to contact him or control him, something along those lines. So later on when we get the revelation about what is actually going on, it felt like it was breaking the Houghton Rule, even though it wasn't. So if you're new to the Twilight Zone podcast, the Houghton Rule is from a quote by the great Buck Houghton, the former producer of the Twilight Zone, that there is only one trick per episode. So for example, if you have aliens in an episode, you wouldn't then have a ghost in it as well, or you wouldn't have time travel and a robot. The more things you have, the harder it is to suspend this belief. So while this doesn't break the Houghton rule, I'm not particularly fond of how this noise is used. It's usually supposed to signify the surfacing of Alan's murderous tendencies, which is something that comes up throughout the episode, that he has a compulsion to kill. Now I realise that this is a tough thing to do, and they have to show it somehow, this inner turmoil that he has, but I'm not sure that this was the best way of doing it. The episode itself is based on a Charles Beaumont short story, The Man Who Made Himself. So how did Beaumont portray these episodes in that story? Well, he does it in a couple of ways. For this particular scene, he uses a cryptic dream-type sequence. And it goes like this. Fire. A bright leaf on the rotted curtain first, and then two leaves, and three. And then the curtain falling and the leaves turning into blazing yellow ivy. Reaching up the wall, across the floor, over the tables and chairs, growing. Walter, a forest of flame, hungry, and the man with the bandage, quiet, still and quiet, waiting to be eaten. And later on in the story, Beaumont also uses a different method, which we'll talk about in a moment. But it's interesting as well that in this story, we find out that the two of them met after Alan was hit by Jess's car. And the two of them then go for a drink afterwards and that's how they get to know each other. But this time they continue into town, but not before they change seats so that Alan can drive. And we have a little moment of maybe Twilight Zone referencing itself when he comments that them changing seats is like a changing of the guard, the last episode. Oh, she must
2: have a lock from the inside. And Mildred! And Mildred! Hey, Alan, you're gonna shake up the whole neighborhood. Well, I have to. She's hard of hearing. Aunt Mildred! What do you want? I'm Alan Talbot. So? So, I happen to live here. Now, would you mind telling me who you are and what you're doing in my mm, house? Crazy or something. Wait a minute. Where's Aunt Mildred? Who? Mildred Talbot. Now, listen, mister. Let me tell you something. you You made some kind of a mistake. I live here. I've lived here for nine years. I bought this place from Gerald Butler and I've got the need to prove it. I don't know anybody named Mildred and I don't know you
3: either. Now you get off my property or I'll call the sheriff.
0: So when our couple get into town, we get a series of scenes where things aren't quite how Alan remembers. Buildings are there that weren't there before. People who Alan knew are now long dead. So while they try to figure out what's going on, let's meet our leading man. Alan Talbot and later Walter Ryder Jr. are played by George Grizzard. And this is a far cry from when we first saw him in The Twilight Zone in Season 1 with the episode The Chaser. Now I really like George Grizzard as an actor and I think he has great range. He's one of those actors that... Once they got the acting bug, just became immersed in the craft for the rest of their lives. And he was born in 1928 in North Carolina. And after working in advertising and then potentially having a career in radio broadcasting, he got a taste for acting and studied in New York and eventually found himself on Broadway. And when your first role is as Paul Newman's younger brother and you get critically acclaimed for it, then you must be doing something right. So stage success followed, as did a transition to the screen, and with 99 credits to his name, he did occasionally work in the movies, but the majority of his roles were in television. And although his output did slow down through the 80s and into the 90s, he did continue to work steadily as he got older, and his final movie before he passed away, was the 2006 Clint Eastwood film, The Flags of Our Fathers. And there is just something about Grizzard that I really like. He has these big expressive eyes that are like windows to his soul, and clearly has the gift for comedy as we saw in The Chaser, but also a gift for drama as we see here. He's a very watchable actor for me and I really enjoy his presence on screen. So Alan and Jess continue their sleuthing, but the fuss Alan made at the man's house earlier results in the law catching up with them at a cemetery where they're doing some investigating.
2: This man says you caused a disturbance at his house. You admit it? Yes, I made a mistake. Said you claimed it was your house. Well, I thought it was. I'm sorry. You satisfied? Well, as long as he owns up to it. But you better not come pestering me again, young feller. I won't. Go on back to the car. I'll be long in a minute. What's your name, son? Alan Talbot. Is this your wife? No. We're just friends. Well, Mr. Talbot, you want to tell me what you're doing in Kerrville? You're the sheriff? That's right. What happened to Carl Jasperson? He's the man I replace. you know him? He's my godfather. Where can I find him? Over
1: there. Oh, miss. I can't force you to do anything because you haven't broken any laws. But I'd like to suggest that you take your friend to see a doctor. He looks sick
0: i love the directness of that cop just no messing about cut to the chase you caused the disturbance so do you admit it but incidentally the overcautious man who called the police because a stranger knocked on his door is a three-time twilight zone player we've seen him in the rip van winkle caper and also recently in young man's fancy so this is an episode that is filled with twilight zone alumni So we have a midsection to the episode here, that is a number of scenes in which Alan and Jess are trying to figure out what's going on. Is Alan going mad, or is it something else? So this seems like a good time to tackle the major difference in season 4, the episode length. Is it a factor in this episode? Now I don't want to be overly consumed with this in the season 4 reviews, but the season being what it is, I do think we probably need to tackle it sometimes. As I mentioned earlier, this is adapted from a Charles Beaumont short story, The Man Who Made Himself, which first appeared in February 1957 in an issue of Imagination. Now, although he uses different character names in the short story, it is the same story. I did consider reading it, or at least some passages from it. But the thing is, it is so faithful that it's faithful to the point where a lot of the dialogue is the same. And because it's just so close, there just didn't seem much point in reading it. So can an episode really be too long? when it's really just a faithful adaptation of the story it's based on. And the original story is good, I don't think it's one of Beaumont's best, but it's decent. But one of the interesting things about it is that its inclusion in the Twilight Zone dates back to before the show actually came on air. And originally, Rod Sailing intended on scripting it himself. And Martin Grahams Jr. documents this in Unlocking the Door to a television classic. And he refers to a one and a quarter page plot synopsis titled The Image. And he writes, Sailing changed the name of the protagonist to Jameson, who takes his girl to his hometown in Connecticut. There, every recollection that Jameson possessed appeared distorted and strangely different Buildings, he recalled, are either not there or do not fit the description. His fear begins to assume serious proportions, scaring the girl as he takes her back to New York. After burning himself, Jameson observes metallic objects sticking out of his thumb. Visiting a friend of his, Peter's, Jameson discovers his friend is an exact duplicate. Only Jameson is made of plastic wires and coils. He is electronically generated. Peters explains that as a shy man, he cannot get along with other people, so he tried to create something more perfect than himself. Jameson, running out of power, sits down and asks what he can do, describing the girl and the fact that they were going to be married. Peters does not say very much. The last scene, however, as Peter's entertaining the girl at her apartment, and when he accidentally burns his thumb, flesh and blood are revealed. So it looks like Rod Serling was planning on completely jettisoning the subplot about the robot's compulsion to kill, and that does certainly streamline the story. So was that change made to cut down the running time, or was it just part of the adaptation process? Sailing taking out what he didn't think worked and leaving in what he did. Now to tell the truth, the compulsion to kill aspect was something that I wasn't really sure about when I first watched it. But I will get back to that. I know we only have Martin Grams Jr's description to go off, but I actually think Sailing's version does seem to work. It brings a certain dignity to the act of the Shy Peters stepping out of his comfort zone as a gesture to honor his creation, Jameson. He sees that Jameson has ran out of power, so he doesn't let the love that he has fostered with the girl die with him. Unless all that Jameson needed was some new batteries, then in that case, Peter's just stole his girl. So that would have fitted nicely into the half-hour format. But if we put that to one side for a moment, does this episode feel too long does it feel like a half hour story stretched over an hour in this case i would say that i don't feel it too long there are certainly scenes that could have been written around to remove them and make it shorter but you can probably say that about most things i think just because you can make a cut it doesn't necessarily mean that it needs a cut i actually find this to be pretty well paced and i was engaged throughout And I was never looking at my watch feeling that it was too long. So I'm perfectly happy with the episode length this time round. And we'll see how we go with that as the season progresses. Now after their adventures in town, Jess is driving them away and they have this conversation.
2: Darling, I know how upset you are, but there's a rational explanation for all this. There has to be a friend of mine, Dr. Matthews he had a patient once who couldn't even remember her own name she was on a plane suddenly she couldn't remember where she was going or why or anything when he first talked to her she couldn't remember a thing about her life but after two weeks she was just fine it was a form of amnesia I think you should see him, Alan. You like Dr. Matthews. Put it down, Alan. Get away. Run, Robert. Run! Stop the car! Are you gonna be sick? Yes, hurry, stop the car!
0: So again, we get the sounds, we get the lights on Alan's face. Signifying that something inside is trying to get out. It's his compulsion to kill. But the book version presents this as a bit more low-key. And Alan simply starts to get angry at Jess for completely irrational reasons. And the story goes like this. The car pulled into a service station and he shut his eyes against the sudden brilliance. What was she trying to do anyway? Blind him? And who the hell did she think she was to order him around? He looked at Jess. She smiled. Then he remembered that she had used the word doctor. Why? To cure him? Or to get rid of him? Quietly? Of course one of her doctor friends would slip him a needle. And that would be that. Never mind the reason. Women have their own reasons. He waited until the sky had turned almost completely black then he said, Jess, would you please stop the car? So again, this time round, we don't get the flashing lights or the noises. It is really just this irrational kind of anger towards Jess, the feeling that she's trying to get him killed, so he's going to do it first. And it's here that we get the big reveal. Alan jumps out of the way of a car and cuts his arm, which exposes some wires. And we see that Alan is a robot. Now, I mentioned earlier that this is a Charles Beaumont story and Martin Grahams Jr. documents an instance where the specter of plagiarism rears its ugly head again. And apparently, after the airing of the episode The Lateness of the Hour, Beaumont said, immediately after The Lateness of the Hour, I was deluged by friends and acquaintances who phoned to protest. They had all read my story in his image, and many of them knew that I had submitted it to the Twilight Zone. None of them said, that was something like your yawn, or I see that Rod has had the same idea, but instead, where was your name? And how come you changed the guy to a girl? All took it absolutely for granted that the show was my story adaptation. All were shocked when I said that it wasn't my story, not really. Now Sailing felt that both of the stories weren't really the same beyond the central theme and to be honest I agree with him, maybe it's because of the times in which we live where we've seen thousands of robot stories since then, but I honestly never connected the two and I guess Beaumont mustn't have taken it too seriously because he carried on working for the Twilight Zone. So in the end, Alan gets to the bottom of the mystery and the Walter who he had been talking about in his sleep was actually his creator who looks exactly like him.
2: Exactly eight days ago, you were born here in this house. What? I made the delivery myself. Who am I? You're nobody, Alan nobody at all stop it Walter. well who is this watch i'm wearing ask me that who is the refrigerator in the kitchen don't you understand no you're a machine alan a mechanical device
0: george grizzard said in unlocking the door to a television classic i did two of those twilight zones my part was much larger in the second because it was the first hour-long production. Perry Lafferty was the director. You could tell he knew exactly what he was doing from day one. The scene where I fight my dual self was done through a process here they call split-screen. The camera was situated and bolted, so it would stay in one place. Then they filmed me on one side of the screen acting out the motions, as if I was talking to my other self. Then they filmed me on the other side playing the other role. There was tape on the floor to mark the center of the screen. I would not cross the line. The fellow who played my duplicate during the fight scenes, Joseph Sargent, read my lines off camera, so the dialogue will be timed. When they put the film together, both halves were sliced to give the appearance that there really were two Georges on the screen. I love these scenes between Walter and Alan, both played by George Grizzard. They are pretty much flawless in their use of the split screen which was an amazing achievement for that time. And then it's supported by Judge Grizzard giving a great performance as both men. Each distinct from each other even though they look exactly the same. Now in the book version the human of the two has a scar on his face which differentiates them. And in the scene when he walks into the apartment to see Jess at the end we can tell that it's the human because he has the scar on his face so in the episode this final scene between them takes about 15 minutes so the finale is as long as two-thirds of a regular twilight zone episode but you know what i'm glad of it i enjoy this scene between them so much exploring why walter did this what went wrong what's the fallout afterwards you know This is a great scene, and the fight at the end is beautifully done as well. And in the end, Alan realises that he can't exist anymore, but before his compulsion to kill takes over, he tells Walter that he has to be the man that Jess deserves.
2: You sure you can't fix me? Even if I could, it wouldn't solve your problems. The girl would find out eventually. How? Well, for one thing, she would grow old and you wouldn't. For another, being a machine, you would suffer a breakdown someday. And all of these things never occurred to you. I guess I didn't really think I'd succeed as well as I did. What does it matter anyway? There's nothing that can be done. Yes, there is. You're going to create another Alan Talbot. No, I just told you. You heard me, another Alan Talbot. Only this one's going to be right. And he's going to walk out of here tonight and he's going to marry a girl named Jess. And for the first time in his miserable life, he's going to be happy. Well, I don't understand. You give me a pencil. This is her name. And address.
0: After the episode aired, The Hollywood Reporter reviewed it and they said, The debut of the new hour-long format for The Twilight Zone incorporated all of the pluses, dramatic camera angles, mood lighting, hair-raising anticlimaxes for suspense builds, that originally had made the half-hour version a prestige fantasy show from the start. Unfortunately, the second half didn't measure up to the suspense and excitement of the first half-hour, the explanation of the puzzle. The second half of the show in which the solution was given slipped into routine science fiction stuff. The man played by George Grizzard was passed off as an electronic creation of a scientific genius. Also played by Grizzard. In short, another version of Frankenstein. When I watched it for the first time, I think I was in a similar place to that reviewer, and I think it's... Quite a fair review. If we accept the technological advancement that androids can be built, then there is no Twilight Zone magic involved here. It is just a science fiction story. And if this was on another show like maybe The Outer Limits, would it fit there? Probably. But saying that, a Frankenstein story for the android age, I kind of like that. It is a rather strange feeling sitting here evaluating this episode and looking forward to the fourth season of a 60 year old show with even more enthusiasm that I have for modern television shows. But it's encouraging that I'm not alone. Many of you out there as the listener feedback episode for season three showed, haven't really seen this season either. And one thing that I love about you, my audience, is that even when you have watched and dissected an episode of the Twilight Zone many, many times, you're still willing to take that journey with me and try and approach it with fresh eyes as well. Now for me, the entirety of my Twilight Zone experience was the majority of seasons one to three and some episodes of season five. So whatever came into that sphere was my Twilight Zone. And it's those that feel like the Twilight Zone to me. And when you've been used to something as a whole for so many years, even an incomplete whole, it can be difficult to assimilate something else into that whole. And that's why any new Twilight Zone series not only has to climb the mountain of not having Rod Sailing there, but also fitting into that whole that we all have, our own view of the Twilight Zone. So this did feel quite odd to me at first, and I wasn't really sure where I sat with it. The noises and the lights when Alan felt his compulsion to kill just seemed a bit misjudged, so when the revelation comes, it almost feels like it is breaking the book Houghton rule of one trick per episode, even though it isn't. And I wasn't really sure about the whole compulsion to kill aspect of it anyway, was it a bit too much? Now I read Out Rod Sailing's original take on Beaumont's story earlier, and I think that on its own, without the aspect of the compulsion to kill, would have worked perfectly as a Twilight Zone in its own right. So I had to get my head around again thinking, is this just trying to tackle too much? The twist that he's a robot, and then all of this desire to kill stuff as well but after a couple of watches it really did start to settle in with me the title in his image has quite a religious sounding ring to it that the original title the man who made himself didn't have and of course it's from the story of genesis that god made man in his image but i don't think you need to be religious to agree that The creation of our species was out of our hands. So whether it's by divine creation or evolution, we came to be a certain way. And certain checks and balances were put in place. The natural world finds balance and equilibrium. But Alan is not of the natural world. He is Walter's creation. And when Walter tries to play God or Mother Nature, He doesn't have the all-seeing oversight of those forces. He doesn't see what he perceives as a flaw is actually a safety mechanism, a balance. Now that's not to say that Charles Beaumont is saying that all introverted people are potential serial killers, but just that in this case it's true. But in the next case with another person, perhaps their overconfidence is the counterbalance to something completely different. That's the whole point, things just aren't that simple. I think this is Charles Beaumont's warning against playing God, that the very binary way that we as humans often see things is far too simple and we are playing with things we don't understand. And in the end, the android Alan Talbot told the human Walter Ryder to make a better version of Alan Talbot. Not by playing God, but by changing the thing that he had been given control of, himself. So Walter had to work at being more confident, rather than just creating it out of nothing. So whether by God or by nature, the thing that we have control of is ourselves, and how we act, and how we treat people. So I found myself really appreciating this episode in the end, And with a longer running time, that final conversation between Alan and Walter had time to explore all of these things, to illustrate to us that often what we are meddling in isn't quite as simple as we think. So in a way, it's just like saying that a Twilight Zone episode shouldn't be an hour long, when actually, maybe it's not quite as simple as that.
1: In a way, it can be said that Walter Ryder succeeded in his life's ambition, even though the man he created was, after all, himself. There may be easier ways to self-improvement, but sometimes it happens that the shortest distance between two points is a crooked line through the Twilight
0: Zone. You know, one of the things I loved about covering Twilight Zone 2019 was that the community here at the Twilight Zone podcast really came together for those shows and got their voices out there and I thought here in season four it's a good opportunity to maybe try and bring a bit of that into the main shows you know why should we save it just for uh, the new Twilight Zone so if you'd like to get your thoughts on the show about any of the episodes in season four and please email your clips to tom at the and they can be mp3 or whatever your phone or recording device puts them into. I'm usually able to convert them and put them into the show. So we say around five minutes, give or take is a good rough guide for these clips. So the way I'm going to present it going forward is if I need to kind of tell you the listeners anything, then I will do the main review. And then I will speak to you now and after that pass you over to the listeners because you know some people just stick around for the main review and say that's enough for me, see you later. But some people really love this community aspect as well. So the option is there. If you want to stick around for it then you can do but if you just want to stick around for the main show and then any housekeeping then you can do that here in this midsection. But before I hand you over to the listeners... I just want to thank the following new patrons. Now normally, now, normally I assign them an episode of the podcast because that is the episode that they are sponsoring and keeping on the air. Now, I'm going to approach that slightly differently purely for the fact that uh, patrons come and go and now that we've got a good number on there, you know, some people say, I'm just going to contribute for a couple of months and then that's me. And the the problem is, when people are coming and going, it's just becoming unmanageable um, to be updating that page, the executive producer's page, on the twilightzonepodcast.com all the time. So I'm going to change it to people who have contributed for a certain amount of months. Uh, I'm not going to take away anything that I've already put on there, but naturally people come and go in Patreon terms, and that's fine. So instead of putting everyone on straight away then after a certain amount of time, which I will decide down the line, uh, then people will, if they stick around for long enough, then they will get that episode sponsorship because otherwise it's just taken uh, me forever because it it was becoming quite unmanageable. So that being said, and I'm probably going to um, be repeating a couple of these names, but that's okay. So first of all, Diana Spranklin, now currently she's wanted in Binghamton for trying to break into the carousel, but that's another story. Welcome Diana, thank you. And then Druman, we'll hear from him in a moment, good guy, and he is a new patron too. Shelley Grisker, thanks so much for coming on board. Joseph Lacino, thank you so much for your patronage. Hellhound Publishing, that sounds interesting, so thank you for coming on board too. Brian Jones, welcome, and thank you for supporting the show. Mark Amorosi, thank you to you as well for becoming a patron. Then there is Mark Rayburn. Thank you so much, Mark. I appreciate it. Johnny Heller, good guy. Thank you for coming on board. Appreciate it. Then Ewan, appreciate you coming on board and supporting the show. Thank you. And then last but not least, Sheila Job, Thank you for supporting the Twilight Zone podcast. At the moment, I'm in the middle of kind of rethinking how I do things over there. So it's going to be gradually changing, but I think changing for the better. And uh, hopefully there'll be some interesting content over there. But if you want to jump on board, then it is patreon.com slash zone podcast. So that's enough for me. I'm going to hand you over to the listeners now. And like I said, I don't expect everyone to send in feedback for every episode but if there's an episode you like in season 4 or dislike or just want to say something about then please do send your voice clip in or if there's just some general twilight zone stuff that you want to say then that is welcome as well so please feel free to do it okay that's enough for me let's hear from the listeners
3: rod serling
1: creator of the twilight zone will tell you about next week's story after this message
4: hey tom Paul Gallagher here from the Night Gallery Twitter page and the uh, Shadow and Substance blog and Facebook pages. Uh, thanks for giving me a few minutes to chime in. I really appreciate that. As your uh, regular listeners may recall from the other times you've uh, had me on the show, I'm uh, truly a longtime fan of yours. And uh, in fact, I recently unearthed a uh, Follow Friday that I tweeted about your podcast uh, back in April of 2011. So it's definitely been a while, um, and it's it's really been a great experience to follow along with you as you uh, work your way through seasons one two and three and now here you are diving into season four at last so um i find that this season tends to be underappreciated um i think that's partly because people are simply not as familiar with these episodes uh, you know since they're an hour long and you know over the years any tv station that carved 30 minutes out of its schedule to rerun the other 138 episodes um really couldn't air it, at least not without rearranging their schedule and uh, it's, uh, it's unlikely they'd want to do that. But uh, but I think the main reason that they're not as well known and appreciated is that um, Twilight Zone at an hour simply wasn't the same show. You know? I mean sure it touched on some of the same themes and it could still scare us or make us think or touch us in some way just as it had before and and as it would again in season five, but, but still the show had turned out to be so perfectly suited to the half-hour slot the format then the, I think the longer episodes meant that the show inevitably lost the snap and the pacing that graced so many of its classic episodes you know there were times when an hour half-hour Twilight Zone can feel a bit rushed but at an hour there obviously there can be padding so, and even when there isn't any padding Uh, You know, because season four still gave us some very fine writing from Rod Serling and Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont. That that, that great Twilight Zone trio. So, even when there isn't any padding, the show still became more of a drama in that season, I think. And less of a thriller, fantasy, sci-fi type of show that could set up your expectations and then zap, just subvert them in some way that made us laugh or cry or, you know, think... But still, I think season four, it certainly starts off with a bang. Um, uh, you know, in his image, you know, the episode that um, I know that you were uh, uh, discussing in, in the podcast that this clip will appear on, uh, I think is a solid story from from Beaumont. We get a little mystery to solve, which keeps us guessing and intrigued for about half the episode. And then when we discover Alan's secret, you know, we get to meet Walter, his maker. You know, it's a kind of modern Frankenstein story in a way. Someone replied to me on a um, on Twitter the other day to say that it was all well and good up until Walter and Alan meet, and then felt like it sagged a bit. But uh, I disagree. You know, I enjoy all that talk from Walter about how he worked on his creations. You know, I can't help feeling that it's a commentary, and perhaps intentional, but maybe not, on the whole self help movement, you know, which has been around for a while. You know, how we strive to remake ourselves at various times. Uh, but because this is the Twilight Zone, it's literal. You know, the man's making a robot or a robot, uh, as, as we so often hear on Twilight Zone. So, and yet, like the best of Twilight Zone or the best of sci-fi, the episode invites us to think about what makes us human. You know, is it technical perfection, you know, which is what Walter's striving for, is it something more heart-based? So, uh, I don't know about other viewers, but I find it very interesting to ponder those things. So, uh, that, that Walter talking to Alan and Alan asking his increasingly desperate questions is actually one of my favorite parts of the entire episode and really the entire season. So, And, I mean, there are some other strong episodes ahead, you know, inc- including Serling's own On Thursday We Leave for Home and Matheson's Death Ship and Earl Hamner's Jess Bell and Beaumont's Printer's Devil and uh, The New Exhibit, which is really scary and fun. I love that episode. So I've, I've, I think I've blogged about it like four times, and <laughs> there are other episodes I haven't blogged about even once, so I obviously like it a lot. So Now, there are episodes in Season 4 that have an intriguing idea that could have benefited from a shorter running time, like The 30 Fathom Grave, and, and there are still others that some fans may find cute, but are still a far cry from the quality we usually get from Twilight Zone, such as uh, I Dream of Genie and The Bard. You know, I mean, they both have their moments uh, that amuse me or interest me. I don't mean that they're terrible. Well, pretty close, at least by Twilight Zone standards, which are pretty high. So, so in short, I, I feel like season four deserves more attention and a closer look. So, I'm, I'm glad you're going to be providing that uh, over the next uh, uh, several months. So, but I feel like there's a reason Twilight Zone went back to the half-hour slot for its uh, final season. You know, is Serling himself said a couple of years before Season 4, quote, he wrote, Ours is the perfect half-hour show. If we went to an hour, we'd have to flesh out our stories soap opera style. Viewers could watch 15 minutes without knowing whether they were in a Twilight Zone or Desilu playhouse, unquote. So I think he was right. Anyway, so good luck, Tom, as you make your way through Season 4. Can't wait to hear what you have in store for us. See you around.
5: Guys, this is Ed Montalvo from Gurney, Illinois. Each of my comments is going to start off with a line that I put on the back of my Twilight Zone themed masterpiece. For in his image, here was the line. Luck had a great deal to do with your creation. I've seen every Twilight Zone episode many times. And now, I tend to focus on looking at details that I might have missed on previous viewings. There's a few things that I noticed the opening scene of the credits there's a chess game that's in the foreground just below the director's name and as a chess player i'm always interested in uh anything about chess unfortunately when i looked into the position of the pieces it seems like they were probably just set up to look like a game was in progress it wasn't an actual game the pieces were legally moved but They were not in a position that a skilled player would have ever been in. One of the interesting things that I found in this episode was the religious overtones in his image. God creating man in his image. And also the religious lady, the evangelist, when Catherine Squire says to him, I was revelated! (laughs) And then she asked, do you read the book? And he said, what book? I found that pretty funny. One of the things I liked was her saying, It was Sunday, if you will, I was ironing. It came out of the clear blue sky. The breath of God. His voice like an electric shock. After seeing this episode many times, I feel like they're trying to tell us that she was ironing and she got shocked by her iron, but she thought it was a bolt from God and that's why she believes all these things. (laughs) Another thing she said was, The devil is all around us while she has a dead animal around her neck. And then she specifically calls out a passage from the Bible, Leviticus 5.2. So here it is. If anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal, or a carcass of unclean livestock, or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him and he has become unclean, and he realizes his guilt. Again, all that religious talk about touching unclean things while she has a dead animal wrapped around her neck I find to be uh, a detail worth noting I also have to say that uh, I didn't expect him to murder her <laughs> you know when the train's coming in she's saying no 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 and then he th- he throws her <laughs> under the train uh, I found that to be quite shocking there's a couple of funny things I also liked. one was when Alan is dreaming of Walter, and he's questioned by Jess, and he says, We keep him locked up in the cellar. And Jess says, You idiot! I found that to be pretty funny. Another thing I noticed was when Alan and Jess show up at the house looking for his Aunt Mildred, and he's banging on the door. The guy opens the door, and he says, He'll call the sheriff on him if he doesn't leave his property. But then, in the cemetery, he did call the sheriff on him. So I'm like, wow, what a jerk. You said if I'd leave, he wouldn't call the sheriff on me, and here's the sheriff. Another interesting tidbit was in the cemetery, when he's talking to the sheriff, he asks if Jess is his wife. He says, no, we're just friends. I expected him to say that she was his fiance, But maybe if Aunt Mildred didn't approve of her, they weren't going to be married. When Alan arrives at Walter Ryder's house, he just enters it without even knocking. I found that to be uh, an interesting choice. All right, I could go on and on with every single episode, but I know that you're looking for about five minutes, so I'll cut it off there. Thanks.
6: Hi, Tom. It's Chad calling in from Parts Unknown with some thoughts on the first episode of Season 4. I'm recording this in the parking lot of the gym, and the new 50-minute runtime of the Twilight Zone means that I'm going to be getting a little bit of extra cardio on the machines, but I'm getting a bit pudgy in my old age, so it's all for the best. Score one for season four. So, this week, Pearl Jam released a new song called Dance of the Clairvoyance, and I've been listening to it obsessively. And there's a line in the song that says, The expectation of perfection leaves much to endure when the past is the present and the future is no more. And that chorus feels to me a lot like The Twilight Zone, and I think it speaks to the message of tonight's episode. In his image, um, just random thoughts on this. I thought it was a great opening. It was dark. Uh, the figure was isolated in the subway, and this was a callback to the very first episode with Earl Holloman and a uh, fantastic interview that you did with him and put out this week. Uh, great stuff there. First scene was kind of a callback to that, so I thought that was a great opening. There was the terrifying mystic woman in the subway, uh, his murder of her was a surprise um, and the light and the sound indicating that he was really someone else that happened before the murder I thought was really, um, really gripping. And this scene was repeated in the middle of the episode where he almost murders his fiance with a rock, um, but he stops himself and, and sort of, he's like fighting with himself and he tells her, get away, get away. And that scene really was a callback to me to the 2019 series and the episode Not All Men. And that scene uh, seems to have really been a direct inspiration to some of those scenes that explored men's violence and uh, the message that only through effort could that violent impulse uh, be stopped. Um, So the final act where the character meets his identical other self Uh, I thought that the the shooting of that, the framing of it, was really beautiful. He's in that dark room, uh, and the only light that you have is coming through the room that he's walking into, almost kind of like a near-death experience, and we've kind of seen that shot in other episodes before. And this time he's also being followed by a mysterious figure. I thought that was really brilliant. The lighting, uh, the set, and the shot. Uh, the way that the set, when they're talking, looks like a mirror image. So it's like your scene is a mirror image. The, um, the the room that they're in looks like a mirror image of itself. And then you've got the two uh, two twin figures there. So I really I really like that. I thought it was really well done. Um, the Discovery of the human parts in I Sing the Body Electric. uh, It it seemed to call back to that when they first go into that laboratory or that store where they're gonna buy the pieces of the grandmother that they're gonna put together. I think that 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 lighting effect was kinda similar to that. So I really liked it. Uh, When they go downstairs into the laboratory, I thought that was like a perfect recreation of the old 30s horror films. Um, So I I thought this was a really strong episode, um, and I was cautious with it, having heard others say that the shows in season four kind of felt padded or felt like they were too long. Um, but a good show can be long and seem short, and a bad show can seem too long even though it might actually be short. And this one felt just right. It felt like it was kind of a new Twilight Zone experience because they had more freedom to explore more depth because they had additional time. So I didn't think that the extra time worked against it. I thought this was a really strong opener. The story kept uh, the suspense as it unfolded. I thought it unfolded at a really good pace and i thought it was an impressive start to season four um the payoff to the story uh was essentially that the character tried to create a perfect version of himself sort of a callback to the frankenstein uh and the creation of the frankenstein monster i thought it was also maybe a little bit reminiscent in message of a game of pool which was one of the great episodes from season three speaking to the danger of ambition uh, which kind of got back to that line from that new uh dance of the Clairvoyant song, you know, the whole idea that pushing towards perfection has its price. Now, the twist here is that the antagonist isn't seemingly punished for his hubris, or he isn't punished for pushing towards perfection the way that we saw in the game of pool. Uh, He actually seems to be rewarded because the original person uh, goes and seems to be like he's going to make the life that his doppelganger that he created wanted to have with the fiance and it seems like there's there's no comeuppance here but he's actually rewarded and rod serling's closing narration spoke more of self-improvement than of hubris so um i found that kind of interesting it wasn't really what i expected there wasn't really the comeuppance but you know, the closing narration maybe was pushing us towards the idea of, you know, self-improvement. Like he says, maybe this point between point A and point B is a crooked line through the Twilight Zone as opposed to, you know, the straight line. So I thought it was interesting. I thought it was different. Um, My only complaint here is that the closing credits didn't have that classic single image um, like most of the old shows did. Um, I thought that was a pretty iconic piece of twilight zone business and i kind of hope they bring that back but overall excellent episode thought it was really strong can't wait for episode three because a friend actually just today at work told me that he stumbled upon uh season four episode three over the weekend on tv he said it was a fantastic episode he was talking to me all about it so i'm looking forward to that one i haven't seen any of season four so this is all going to be new to me But uh, I am looking forward to the episode that has Julie Newmar starring in it because, well, Julie Newmar is in it. So, looking forward to season three. uh, I'm sorry, looking forward to season four. I think it's off to a great start, and cheers.
7: Hey Tom, this is Druman from Los Angeles, chiming in with my thoughts about the episode In His Image. I thought this was a great episode, great way to start a new season. Uh, for a 50-minute episode, it really didn't feel that long to me because the whole thing about the the mystery and trying to figure out who he was was really engaging. I'd never seen this episode before, so in that first scene when the light shines on Alan's face and we hear the weird signal noise, I was trying to figure out what was happening. And the first thing that came to my mind was that um, maybe this was a really dark version of Mr. Dingle the Strong, and that these aliens were sending signals into his head to tell him to kill people that were around him. And that kind of carried through. It could have been the case up until when we see his arm tear open and we see the circuitry in there. I don't really like the film trailers that are now at the end of each episode since I haven't seen any of them before, and I'm trying to approach each of these episodes as fresh as possible. So I'm going to be team no trailers for this season, just like I was with the 2019 reboot series. I think that it was in the Arlen Schumer interview that you did back in 2017, where he said that every one of the season 4 episodes should get edited down to the 25-minute runtime. So as I watch this season, I'm going to be thinking of what could get cut to make that work. So for In His Image, as far as a way to cut down the running time, I suppose that some of the scenes back in the hometown could have been shortened. But I thought those scenes built up the tension really well. So even though this is the first example I have to work with, I'm going to have to disagree with Schumer on this one. I don't think this would have been better as a shorter episode. Anyways, that's all for me, Tom. Keep up the good
8: work. Talk to you soon. Hello, Tom. This is Eric, your fan from Connecticut, checking back. Three things real quick. First off, the interview with Earl Holloman. Wow. What a get. Great interview. And at 91 years of age, Mr. Holloman was fantastic. Great interview. And really, all you had to do was just ask him a few questions. And he gave the answers and then some. It was outstanding. Uh, Second is really looking forward to the your reviews of season four. And I can't even recall the last time I've seen a season four episode, to be honest with you. And if anybody who's listening to this has Netflix and is a Twilight Zone fan, you know, the season four is not included on Netflix. And so for me, this is like watching brand new episodes because it's been so long since I've seen them. So what I've done is I do have sci-fi here, and they are running season four episodes, so I can DVR those. And by the way, episode two features an actor from Connecticut, Hartford, Connecticut, Mike Kellen. He plays Chief Bell in episode two of The Twilight Zone, The 30 Fathom Grave. And then the last thing real quickly was, um, as you may recall, I'm a huge classic rock fan. And the drummer of Rush passed away, Neil Peart, unfortunately. And Neil was a huge Twilight Zone fan. In fact, you may already know this, but Neil wrote a song based on two Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, It's a Rush song from their album 2112 from 1976, and the song is simply called The Twilight Zone. So if uh, you or your listeners have, have not heard that song yet, definitely check it out. It's a great song. And the two episodes that it's based on are Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up, which is one of my top three favorite episodes of all time from TZ, and Stop Over in a Quiet Town. So anyway, that's it. Tom, thanks so much again for the great episode on uh, Mr. Earl Holliman. Thanks so much just for the podcast in general. It is always uh, It's always a good day when I see a new episode pop up in the feed. We'll talk to you soon.
9: Hey Tom, this is Travis. I just wanted to send you some quick feedback about, uh, in his image, the first episode of Season 4, the hour-long Twilight Zones. A a lot of people got a lot of opinions on Season 4, and I think some people, they're just aping opinions they've heard, because some people, I think like yourself, haven't even seen Season 4 before. Um, It just has the reputation of being so bad uh, for being an hour-long. It's not in syndication, so that has to mean it's garbage. I don't think that's true I actually kind of like season four a lot that being said i don't think this is the best episode from season four but it's 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 pretty good you know it's got uh you know sci-fi robots it's got and they say the word robot and not robot. you know that's got that that's got to be something that's what you call progress uh, another thing that they progressed on in this is uh twilight zone wives uh, we're used to, I'm used to the like, the shrew women that they've had. Uh, I'm thinking of like a stop at Willoughby or time enough at last. Uh, 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 uh oh, oh, I'm having a brain freeze, but there, I had two other examples before I hit record of these, but you know what I'm talking about? Uh, uh, the, these women, you know, our, our main characters, this male who's tortured and, oh, I'm just, I just want to, I'm so gentle. I just. I just want things to be one way, but they're another way. And their wives are these shrew women who you wonder why did you even get married? They're awful, awful, awful. In uh, this the the woman, the, the wife, Jessica, Jennifer, Jessica Connolly or something, whatever her name is. She um she's she's in the opposite direction, maybe even too much to be a little incredible, uh, or incredible, incredi- incredible, incredulous. You know oh hey yeah let's just get married and i just met you four days ago and oh i'm, I'm super supportive it, it's almost like you know what we call, might call nowadays like a mary sue although i don't think i don't think this was charles beaumont's self insert uh you know she's just perfect oh i'm beautiful and i'm nice and oh yeah i just found out you're a lunatic nah man i'm i'm, I'm with you i love you you know i don't know well i mean Maybe it's a nice change of pace. This is what I was saying. It's progress. Progress in the Twilight Zone. Now we're hour long for a little bit. The wives aren't um, ridiculous. And uh, they're saying robots. Anyway, that's it, Tom. Uh, Have a good one. I'll see you in the 30 Fathom Grave.
5: Tom, this is Ed Montalvo. I just wanted to thank you so much for your Earl Holloman interview. I I don't think it could have gone better. I was happy to... uh be able to hook you guys up, and the results were amazing. It brought a tear to my eye. One of the best parts of the Earl interview I felt was when he was explaining about how he was competing with Elvis Presley for the role of Jimmy in the Rainmaker. And I have another piece to the puzzle that is Twilight Zone related, so I thought I would share this with you guys. Back in 2012, I was talking with Gloria Paul who played a minor role, girl at bar, in the season one episode called And When the Sky Was Open. Gloria told me that initially her role was supposed to be one of three girls sitting at a table away from the bar. But on the day of shooting, Rod pulled her out of the table and moved her up to the bar and did a rewrite with all that dialogue. So... Gloria Paul was in The Twilight Zone, but she also was in Jailhouse Rock with Elvis Presley. And she had met him a year earlier in 1956, right about the time when he was auditioning for the part in Rainmaker. So, I thought I would read to you what she told me then. I have an actual recording of her saying these things, but when I went to try to play it, my mini cassette recorder is broken, so I've ordered a new one. But I... I wrote it down, so I'm going to read you what she told me back in 2012. Here it goes. I got a call from MGM in 1957, a year after I met Elvis in Vegas in April 1956. They wanted me to be a strip teaser, or a nicer way to say it was a burlesque queen. I had been a Vegas showgirl, and I know how to dance, so that was okay with me. Well, in April '56, I was at the New Frontier Hotel visiting my showgirl friend Muriel, I remember out front they had this big 100-foot blow-up image of Elvis. Backstage, Muriel asked me if I had met Elvis Presley. He was standing in the corner, checking me out and looking me up and down. I had no idea who he was. She asked me if I knew Elvis. I extended my right hand to shake with him, and he took my fingers to his mouth and proceeded to suck off my fingers one by one. I asked him, what kind of handshake is that? That's Tennessee style, ma'am he said. I answered, remind me not to go there. You're a corny, horny little hick. He laughed his head off. So he goes out and he does this show. He's jumping around and wiggling and doing these gyrations. The people just looked at him, wondering what he was doing. The dining room was only half full, so he flopped. The colonel then took him off the marquee. So back to Jailhouse Rock. I went to the interview, and they said I was perfect for the part. When I showed up for my scene in costume... Elvis walks over to me while I'm in the makeup chair and he says, "'You remember me, ma'am?' I said, "'You look familiar.' He said, "'I met you backstage at the Frontier.' I said, "'That was you?' (laughs) Laughing. I really gave it to him, but Elvis had a great sense of humor. He thought it was funny I was pretending not to know him. I said, "'Are you an extra? What are you doing here?' He answered, "'I'm the star.' I said, "'You're putting me on.' He said, "'No, I swear, I'm the star,' he said. (laughs) "'Ask the makeup man.' So I asked him, is this guy the star or is he putting me on? The makeup man said, yeah, he's the star. So I looked at Elvis and I looked at the makeup man and I said, he winked at you, right? No, really, I'm the star, said Elvis. So Elvis started to follow me around like a puppy dog. He wanted to talk about Vegas. He said that he flopped there, but he was going to go back and be a star. I said, oh, sure. The more I teased him, the more he loved it. I mean, everyone was applauding him everywhere he went, trying to attach themselves to him. To me, he was just a kid, I'm eight years older than Elvis, but everyone was latching on to him because he was on his way up the ladder to great success. We went out to lunch during the movie, he took me over to the commissary. He had his famous peanut butter and banana sandwich, it was pretty gross. He liked it deep fried and here I am a health nut, no fried foods. Now here's a little bit extra information. Elvis was in Las Vegas from April 23rd, 1956 through May 6th of 1956. He was 21 years old. Elvis signed the seven-movie contract that Earl Holloman talked about in early April. So that was only a couple of weeks before he was at the frontier and ran into Gloria Paul. He was telling people that he was going to be doing Rainmaker for a million dollars, but he wound up doing Love Me Tender. Now we know why, because Earl Holloman got the part. When Elvis appeared at the New Frontier, he was an added attraction, Elvis Presley. And they were marketing him as the Atomic Powered Singer. The Muriel that Gloria Paul mentions was a part of the Venus Starlets. So that's why Gloria was able to go backstage at the show. When I first heard the story from Gloria Paul, I wasn't sure if I totally believed that Elvis was a flop. I mean, it was hard to believe Elvis would be a flop. But in researching he really was a flop mainly because he was very popular with teenagers and they were not old enough to get into the casino bar. The older people in attendance really didn't know what to do with someone like Elvis, so it was true that he was a flop there back in uh, 1956. I also found out that his screen test for Rainmaker had been March twenty seventh, 1956, which would have been right around when Earl Holloman was uh, reading his parts. And the contract that Elvis signed with Hal Wallace was a one-picture deal with options for six more pictures. So... There is more evidence backing up Earl Holliman's statement. Not that anyone doubted. In August 1956, Elvis started filming Love Me Tender, and he was on loan out from Paramount to 20th Century Fox. And that movie was originally titled The Reno Brothers, but they renamed it Love Me Tender to capitalize on the success of his uh, record.
3: Hey there, Tom. Harold Clark reporting in from Butte, Texas, talking about In His Image. So... I got a lot that I want to say about this episode, so I'm going to have to breeze through a couple quick topics uh, before getting to my main topic. Uh, so this is, has the new probably most iconic intro, uh, with the door and the eyeball and the, and the scuba diver who, when I was a kid thought, why does he have a cotton ball sticking out of his head? Not realizing it was supposed to be bubbles, but, um, I guess, uh, what do you think about the new intro? Um, you know, like I said, they're going to use this from this season and season five. Um, obviously, this is an hour-long episode. This they chose to make this the first, the first episode in this season, and um, did it. Did it need to be an hour? Um, I guess, in a way, I think it did because you know you have thirty minutes uh, of the mystery to tr- so you can try and figure out what exactly is happening. And then you basically have about 20 minutes uh, with, uh, with uh, Walter and Alan basically having their philosophical discussion about what it means to exist. Um, so for me, uh, I really concentrated this time watching it uh, on those last 20 minutes. And the thing that really struck me about this episode that hadn't struck me before was how strong uh, the Frankenstein parallels were. Um, Walter... Uh, shows that he has two uh, rejects uh, before he was able to create Alan. Uh, just like Frankenstein took him many years of study and experimentation before he made his, his ultimate creation. Um, however, uh, Frankenstein actually ran away from his creation when he succeeded. And uh, from what we understand, Walter was almost killed uh, uh, by his creation. However, uh, both Frankenstein and Walter failed to think about the consequences for the creations once they were created, once they were born. What would, would be the impact on their creation's life once they were created? <clears throat> you know, interesting idea that Alan brings up. You know, he he talks about having a girl, and Walter says it's never going to work. You know, he's not going to age; yeah, he'll break down they don't say this but uh can alan have kids how perfect was this perfect being um but just like with frankenstein's creation when he realizes there's that he's not perfect that there is something wrong with him um that alan demands that another creation be be made and um, of course the creation or the creators both creators you know balk at that idea um And because of that, um, I guess you could say that both creations uh, rebel against their creator, uh, but they rebel due to their creator's actions, not necessarily due to a fault of their own. Um, Alan, he never asked to be created, but now he's shown that he's going to suffer. And in this episode, he ultimately dies. Um, Now... When it gets to the end, you know, he, he, they, they have this idea that, that uh, well, Walter mentions about that everybody is all potential murderers, and that was kind of interesting considering how the episode started uh, with, the, you know, with the old lady and talking about the devil and reading the good book and the Bible and all this stuff and hands out the, the way to salvation and initially, I thought, man, this is an awful, strange way to start this episode because I didn't exactly remember where the episode was going to go. I knew it was having to do with the creation, obviously, but I was like, boy, this is pretty pretty blunt here, and you know, at the end, you know he he says, "Hey, make this new Alan, and basically I guess send the Allen over to his girlfriend's apartment um and tells him to leave but then they seem to imply that maybe maybe there's some sort of sin nature is is this where maybe it comes full circle the whole idea of the path of salvation you know Adam and Eve fallen man you know the sin nature of man we all have a you know we all have a uh, we all just tend to do the wrong thing the bad thing if, if push comes to shove and maybe that's why Beaumont included this idea or maybe this was Serling's edition that you know we're all murderers just some can control it and others can't so it just it was really interesting to see that it seems as if just the robots sin nature took over and tried to again kill his creator and I guess in this case the creator the creator won. Um, you know, I don't know, don't know if it's a happy ending, you know, because like I said, you know, Alan never asked to be created. And when he once he's created, you know, he thinks he's got a good life, but, you know, he finds out that his life's a, a sham, you know. And, you know, Walter, you know, takes over Alan's life. And is it a happy ending for Walter? And Jessica, the girlfriend, she's just kind of a pawn in the whole thing. <laughs> That was kind of a strange, for an hour-long episode, that was an awful fast relationship. What, four days? But I guess it played into the end because she couldn't, she didn't really know Alan slash Walter anyway, so if he acts a little different, eh, I guess you can explain how this could work. So, um, overall, uh, the, of the episode, uh, of the season four episodes, um, I've probably seen this one maybe four times, and, you know all other classic episodes are i've probably seen 30 times so you know obviously not a high on my list but thanks to doing this for the podcast i now have a better appreciation for this episode and and i will actually come back and watch this again and just see what what inspires me the next time i watch it so thank you tom for uh, for uh you know, making me want to check out this episode once again. So those are my thoughts and looking forward to uh, 30 Fathom Grave next time. Okay, talk to you then. Bye.
0: Thank you everyone for your thoughts. I'll just cut in before we close because Harold asked a question. So Harold asked what I thought of the new uh, opening credits. The, the thing is I like them all in different ways, but in a way this is the one uh, that sticks in my mind most, the way sailing says a word and then there's a crash or something like that um so it's a good one i do like it i do like it a lot but then sometimes you go back to a season one episode and you think wow there's there's just this strange beauty about season one's uh, original opening and credits as well so they all have their advantages i guess but i really like this one so that's enough for me let's go over to rod serling to find out what's coming up next and now mr
1: serling The ingredients, an American destroyer, the Pacific Ocean, and the ghostly sound of hammering from 30 fathoms below. They add up to a strange tale of the bizarre and nightmarish. Mike Kellen and Simon Oakland star in a very different kind of twilight zone, which we call the 30-fathom grave. Ain't that a kick in the head? What do you suppose it is? Ghosts, man. Ghosts. Here it is. 714. Commissioned December 1941. Sunk in action. First Battle of the Solomons, August 7th,
2: 1942. Well, that was 20 years ago. Well, Captain Beecham, who's down there? Who's inside that sub?